Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. I'm your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. As you've probably figured out, this podcast is going to cover Lizzie Borden and the Borden murders. It's also going to talk about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. I'm going to present evidence to you based on some papers that have been in my possession for many years, but which I only recently looked at and came to understand. I'm going to present evidence to you that Watson and Holmes were real people and that they were in the United States in 1892 when the murders occurred and that Holmes conducted his own investigation and that Holmes solved it. So that's a lot to throw at you. And if you know anything about the Borden murders, you're going to be interested in this and you're going to want to listen because the Borden murders are probably the most famous unsolved murders in American history. They were brutal, horrific crimes. Mr. and Mrs. Borden were in their 60s. Mr. Borden was rich. He had made his own fortune. They lived in a house in Fall River, Massachusetts. It was a middle-class neighborhood. They were surrounded by houses and they lived right on a busy commercial street with a lot of traffic. The murders took place on a Thursday morning in early August 1892. They occurred about 90 minutes apart. Mrs. Borden was killed first. The police quickly focused their investigation on Lizzie, who was Mr. Borden's 32-year-old daughter from a prior marriage, from his first marriage. He and Mrs. Borden, the Mrs. Borden who died in this attack, had no children of their own. There was another daughter, Emma, who was nine years older than Lizzie, but she was on vacation with some friends and was never a suspect in this case. So Lizzie was charged and she had to wait about 10 months in jail for the trial. And then in June of 1893, there was a 15-day trial and Lizzie was acquitted. The police never charged anybody else. Nobody else was ever convicted. Nobody pled guilty. Nobody confessed. And as I said, this crime is to this day considered unsolved. There have been a lot of books written about the Borden murders. I would say at least 15. There may be 30 or 40. I'm not sure. There's been a lot of coverage, a lot of speculation. A number of theories have been put forth, but there's no consensus. There's no prevailing view as to who committed these crimes or how they were done, except that they were done with a hatchet. Other than that, We don't know. At least you don't know. I do, because I have the records. I have the Watson records. So, the first part of this podcast, the first X number of episodes, will be covering the Borden murders. I think in order to understand how Holmes investigated this case and where he started from and how he processed the information, we need to know what he knew. And that means we need to go through the Borden case and talk about it in the conventional sense, talk about it using the information that has been out there in the public domain for the last 130 years. And when we're done with that, and we're done with the forensic psychiatrist, then we'll get to the material on Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. Now, let me just talk about Watson and Holmes. I always thought they were fictional characters. Everybody thinks that. I think early on, actually, 
in the first few years that Arthur Conan Doyle was supposedly writing these stories, he would get letters from members of the public who would say, can you pass this along to Sherlock Holmes? I need this mystery solved, or I need some help with some event that happened and I can't figure it out. Can you get Sherlock Holmes to contact me? And I think Arthur Conan Doyle was amused by that. And he always led the public to believe that Holmes and Watson were creations of his. They were fictional characters. They never lived. But it turns out that based on these papers that are in my possession, I know that they were actually real historical figures. So I guess I'll start by telling you how I got these records. That's probably the logical place to start. They were in the possession of my great-grandmother. She got them shortly before she died. She died in 1981, January of 1981, and she got these records sometime in the fall of 1980. She got them because it turns out that she was the closest living relative to Dr. Watson. And when Dr. Watson died in 1940, he left instructions with his attorney to wait 40 years and then to deliver his records to his closest living relative. So my great-great-grandfather, the father of my great-grandmother, had emigrated to the United States from England in the 1870s. And his name was Walter Hazelhurst. John H. Watson, his full name was John Hazelhurst Watson. So they were first cousins. Watson had one brother who died without marrying, never had children. That was Watson's only sibling. So my great-great-grandfather was his closest relative. And Watson and my great-great-grandfather had been close when they were young, when they were boys, when they were adolescents. They'd been very close. And in fact, when Watson was in the United States in the 1890s, when the Borden case was being investigated, at one point, he went to Philadelphia and stayed with my great-great-grandfather and spent some time there. The way I got these records was that when my great-grandmother died, her daughter, my grandmother, who was her only child, had predeceased her. So the next in line was not her daughter, but it was my mother and her siblings. They were the ones that were inheriting my great-grandmother's estate. And so in January of 1981, I had some free time. I had recently graduated from college, and I had a little time before I was about to start a job. And I tagged along with my mother, and we we went down to Philadelphia, and we met up with my my aunts and my uncle, and we went into my great-grandmother's apartment, and they started dividing stuff up, and I was just there watching. And there were a few items they didn't want And one of the things they didn't want was this tin box that had a bunch of papers in it. The box had the initials JHW painted on the side, stenciled on the side. And it was kind of battered. The box was sort of battered. It was big enough to hold about three or 400 pages of handwritten notes. What I didn't notice at the time, and I'm embarrassed to say I didn't notice until 40 years later, was it included in the notes was a fairly big manila envelope sort of buried in the middle of these notes that contained a number of letters back and forth between someone identified as John Hazelhurst on the one hand and his attorney, John Hector McFarland, on the other. Now, I didn't go through these records until, until 2020, and that was only because of COVID and because we were shut down, locked down, and I had nothing better to do, and I was 
going crazy. So I dug them out and I, they had always looked kind of intimidating to me. I couldn't make heads or tails of them. I glanced at them briefly every so often. Once in a great while, I would look at them. It's amazing I even had them. I mean, I moved so many times over the course of 40 years from the time I got them at the age of 22 or 23, 22, I guess, until 40 years later. I had moved a dozen times, 12, 15 times. There were plenty of personal items I had left behind or lost or forgotten. Somehow I brought these papers. I lost that tin box. That's gone. I don't know where it is. But I kept these papers. So anyway, I go through them in 2020, and I find these letters from the attorney. And his name's John Hector McFarland. And I thought about that name. I knew I'd seen it before. And I remembered, eventually I remembered because I had read all the Sherlock Holmes stories and I liked them a lot. I remembered he was a character from a Sherlock Holmes story. And I found him, I found the story. It was the adventure of the Norwood builder. So I'm asking myself, I'm looking at these letters from a real attorney on real letterhead in envelopes that are postmarked between 1910 and 1940. And they're signed by someone named John Hector McFarlane and he's a lawyer. And I'm asking myself, well, what's going on here? Because he apparently he's a real person. And why is he portrayed as a fictional character in a story? And I thought maybe Arthur Conan Doyle had known this lawyer and just got his permission to use his name in a story. No other explanation made sense. But it really, it really got me interested. And I noticed that so the letters that the lawyer sent were addressed to John Hazelhurst. And my great-grandmother's maiden name was Hazelhurst. So I knew that this guy must be a relative. At the time, I didn't know that this was actually John Hazelhurst Watson. But I did notice that the letters that went back to the lawyer that were included in this tin box. So it wasn't just the letters from the lawyer to John Hazelhurst, a.k.a. John H. Watson. It was the letters that Watson was writing back to him. And I noticed that in those letters, he never signed his name, but he always put the initials J.H.W. So if his name was John Hazelhurst, there'd be no reason for him to put a W at the end. It would be J.H. or he just signed his name. So. That was curious. And then when I looked at the letters and started to look at the whole package, and I went through these notes, and the notes were disorganized, they were out of order. A lot of the pages were unnumbered, weren't marked. There was some stuff that was clearly written in code, cipher. I couldn't make that out, but some of it was just written in English and was not meant to be, apparently meant to be kept secret. There were multiple references to S.H., dozens and dozens of references, and that would be Sherlock Holmes. I don't know how else I could explain this. It became more and more clear to me as I read through this that this was John H. Watson, that these were some of his notes, and that for some reason, which at that time I didn't understand, he was being referred to by his attorney as John Hazelhurst. It took me a while to figure all this out, but... Eventually, what I came to realize is that Holmes and Watson were real people and that the memoirs were based on notes that Watson had turned over to Doyle, that Doyle was the author, Doyle was the professional writer, and that Doyle was in a partnership of sorts with Holmes and Watson. And that part of the deal was that Doyle would pretend that they were fictional characters and that it was for some reason in Holmes and Watson's interest 
to be portrayed as fictional characters and not to be recognized as real people. So all of this I began to piece together. And I'll explain as we go along and as we get further into this podcast, I'll explain why all this happened and what all this meant. Towards the end of the correspondence, they start talking about something that they are worried about, clearly, that Watson's worried about. And he refers to it as the Fall River tragedy. Now, I know enough about the Borden case to know that that was what the press called it at the time. The Borden murders were referred to as the Fall River Tragedy. And I think there was a book, at least one book written with that title. And also I saw the initials L.A.B. in some of these letters. I knew from reading up on the Borden case that those were Lizzie Borden's initials. It became clear to me from reading these records, especially the later ones, that Watson was talking to his attorney about something that he and Holmes had done in the United States pertaining to the Borden murders, pertaining to the investigation, and that Watson was concerned about some kind of ramifications, criminal prosecution maybe for something he and Holmes had done, or some kind of civil liability or some major hit to their reputation, some major embarrassment they wanted to avoid. And it was clear that Watson had filled McFarlane in on this, probably in person, and that they were talking about this in a roundabout, oblique way in the correspondence. But clearly, if you looked at all the letters together and you looked at the notes and everything, this was the context. I also saw in the records, in the correspondence, that one of Watson's final instructions to McFarlane was that he take all of the surviving records. And apparently, a lot of the records have been destroyed already. Apparently, Watson had a trunk full of notes and records about other cases that were never published. And those were kept in a bank, a bank called Cox and Company in London. And that bank was destroyed in a raid by the Luftwaffe in the Blitz. So most of Watson's records were destroyed. But the ones that got to me via my great grandmother apparently had been in the possession of John Hector McFarland, that Watson had entrusted him to hang on to these and had told him to have these records sent to his closest personal relative, but not until 40 years after Watson had died. And so I know that these records were sent to my great-grandmother in the fall of 1980, because there was an envelope postmarked from Great Britain, some kind of cover letter that came with these materials. And that was dated in the late fall of 1980. So that would have meant that Watson died in the late fall of 1940. And according to the letter that went to my great-grandmother, it appears that uh, Watson had died at the age of 88 in a nursing home and that he was childless and had not been survived by any of his wives. I guess he'd been married a couple of times. And unfortunately, all I got was a part of the letter. I guess my great-grandmother at the age of 95 was not particularly organized and So it was a two or three page letter and I only got one of the pages. So that was all the information I got. The rest of it was lost, thrown out, misplaced, destroyed. I don't know. This is big news. I can't pretend it's not. I can't sit here and do this podcast and say, oh, this is humdrum. This is big news. Sherlock Holmes is a huge cultural figure. He's arguably the best known literary figure in the English language. There have been not just the Sherlock Holmes books, but all the knockoffs, all the the books that have been purportedly written by John H. Watson that were discovered 
And there are the movies and the plays and the radio programs and the TV shows up to the current time. We have movies with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, and those were recent. And we've got the Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. He's a huge figure in our culture. And there are many, many people who are Sherlock Holmes fans. And the Borden murders are still being studied. And there are books that have come out in the last few years. The last 10 years, there have been at least three or four books about the Borden murders that are mainstream books. They aren't books done in the major publishing firms. So you may be wondering why I didn't try to get this out into the public through an expert. Why am I doing this by myself? If I want to be taken seriously, why am I doing it in the context of a podcast? If you think about it, the answer is obvious. I did try. I approached a few museums. I got no response. I approached some professors, professors of English literature, history and literature, British culture from 1850 to the end of World War I. I tried all those different categories and I got virtually no response. I was just ignored. And to the extent I did get responses, for the most part, it was essentially, we're not taking you seriously. Please don't bother us again. I did actually speak to somebody who was trying to get tenured professorship at a small college. I won't give you his name. I won't tell you what college it was. And he was nice enough to talk to me. But basically what he said was I had to turn over all the original materials, the letters, the notes, and that he couldn't tell me when I would get them back, that he would keep them as long as he felt necessary. He would not promise that he was going to publish them. He said he would have to examine them and run tests on them and do a lot of thinking and probably do some consultations. He would not sign a non-disclosure agreement with me. In other words, he was saying that I had to agree to let him show these around to different people. And he said, I may not end up agreeing with you that these are authentic and you may wait a long time to get them back. And even if I do consider them authentic, I have control over how and when they get published. That's the deal. You got to understand this is how the academic world works. We don't allow somebody to control our editorial process. That isn't how it works. And I'm sure you can understand that after hearing all that, I was not going to agree. It just wasn't acceptable to me to turn this stuff over and not know what was going to happen to it. So I was really left with two choices, I think. One was to do nothing and just sit on it and pass it along to my kids and leave it at that. And the other was to do a podcast because I'm not a writer. I'm not going to self-publish. I don't know how to write. I I wouldn't know what format to use. How would you write a book on this in a way that would be interesting to the public? The podcast seemed to be the only option. And I'm hoping that people listen to this podcast. I'm hoping that people are interested. I'm hoping that people believe me. Unfortunately, I cannot publish these papers for a number of reasons, at least not yet. One of them is that there are a lot of references in these papers, it looks like, to work that Holmes did on behalf of the British government, because he not only had his own practice, but he was also essentially at times a spy or an undercover agent for the British government, both overseas and domestically. In fact, he was involved in investigating the Ripper murders. 
Some of this stuff probably falls under the Official Secrets Act, the British law that prevents sensitive government information being published until the government says you can. If they classify something as secret, they can keep it secret, I believe, as long as they want. There's no time limit. So I would need to clear this stuff through them to make sure I could publish it. And some of the records are in code or cipher. So I'm not going to put things on the internet that other people can decipher that turn out to be government secrets. That's a disaster. So I can't do this right now. I'm going to need somebody who's an expert on decoding and deciphering this sort of material and then go from there. But that may take me a while. So there are a number of questions that I think we're going to need to address in this podcast, and I'm going to run through them right now as I close. The first one I would say is, why did Holmes and Watson either wish to be considered fictional, or why did they agree to it? Whose idea was this? What was the purpose? The second question, what role did Arthur Conan Doyle play in this? Because he clearly played a role in publishing and promoting these stories. And he agreed to be the front man, and he agreed to tell the world that these characters were not real people and that they were figments of his imagination. Why? What was that all about? Why did he agree to that? How did he get brought into the process? The third is, how did they manage to do this? How did they manage not to get caught? How did they manage not to have an enterprising reporter figure this out? The next question is, what were Watson and Holmes doing in the United States in 1892? And how did they get involved in the Borden case? And I guess the final question is, why didn't they publish this? What were they afraid of? What was it that Watson was so scared was going to happen? What's this worry about a criminal prosecution or irreparable damage to their reputations? Why? What did they do? Well, I've got the answers to all these questions. And you may have additional questions of your own. You may well. But these are the ones I've thought of. And so I hope you join me for my next episode. We'll start talking about the Borden case. That's where we'll go next. And we'll cover that. And I'll tell you what materials I've used, what materials I've consulted, and I'll tell you how I plan to do it. And then we'll start talking about it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you join me for the next one. And until then, take care.